Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now this week, we're going to be talking about the economics of fossil fuels. The economics are absolutely critical because they drive deployment. They drive customer purchases. Now, the initial market adoption of all of the fuels that we're using were originally spurred by incentives. You know, you think about nuclear power, and there was government development of that and continues to support that in terms of insurance and loans. Oil exploration, fracking came from experiments were subsidized by the U.S. government. Obviously, wind and solar, you're aware of the solar investment tax credit and things like that. Now, in almost every case, every case I can think of, favorable economics of a fuel allowed that fuel to replace the incumbent fuels. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, what happens is, as these new fuels are coming out, the incumbent fuel industries fight aggressively against the new fuels. They don't want to lose their business. Perfect example is what we're going through, and going through it for, heck, 40, 50 years, is how the fossil fuel industries fight against solar and wind. They fight against nuclear, too. They don't want people using nuclear power. They'd rather have them using oil and gas. All right, just kind of rolling the clock back 100, 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years since man really figured out how to harness fire. We were using wood. Now we call it biomass, but wood was the original fuel that humans were using. Probably, you know, lightning kind of created the first fires, and then man figured out a way, and womankind figured out a way to light a fire with a flint and steel or a a bow that would be a fire starter. And wood was our dominant fuel for 100,000 years or more until we started figuring out that, hey, we can dig this black rock out of the ground called coal. And then coal really took off over the last 150 years as the major fuel. We then switched to petroleum-based products, oil, and then distilled oil, gas, and and kerosene earlier on. And now we're pretty much running most of the U.S. on natural gas. And 60 or 70 years ago, nuclear kind of snuck in there also. We've got a lot of nuclear reactors, 99 of them left, actually. And now the big transition is towards wind and solar. And heck, who knows, 50 years from now, the wind and solar industries may be taken over by something else, maybe nuclear fusion or maybe nuclear fission will become cost-effective. Who knows? So this show's all about how this transition's happening. And most importantly, you know, when I kind of look at it with my experience in the solar industry, most importantly, the transitions really take off when the economics of a new fuel are really favorable to customers. Incentives can only go a certain way to kind of get started or to seed the market. But once customers, businesses, homeowners realize, hey, this is just a cheaper way to do things, it's better for a variety of reasons, then it really takes off. All right, so let's take a look at the major fuels in the United States. Fossil fuels represent 80% of our country's energy consumption. Now, unfortunately, these are based on 2017 figures. I don't have 2018 numbers yet. But kind of looking at this, 80% is represented by gasoline, oil, mostly natural gas, and still a lot of coal. And obviously, the gasoline is being used for transportation. Oil's being distilled into diesel fuel for transportation. But we're using natural gas and coal to generate electricity, and, and a lot of our heat is coming from natural gas. Now, in terms of this fuel mix in the United States, nuclear is about 9%. It's been going down. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then the balance is 11%, represented by hydroelectric power, dams that are generating electricity, biomass, and now wind and solar are growing really, really fast. And unfortunately, they've been growing really, really fast from almost a zero base, but that's accelerating. Okay. So let's take a look at some of these fossil fuels and where they are right now here in 2019. Coal use in the United States is just falling off a cliff. It's mostly used for electric power plants. Our use of coal in the United States peaked 
in 2005. That's 14 years ago. It's declined 40% since then. We're still shipping a lot of coal overseas to other countries to burn and create greenhouse gases and energy. But in the United States, we're using much less. And coal, unfortunately is a very dirty fuel. It's dangerous to human health. It's also dangerous to the overall globe's environment. When you burn coal, it's a mineral. It's a rock that comes out of the ground. You're also emitting mercury, lead, sulfur, particulates. You know, you see these little, you know, white or black flecks and a heck of a lot of CO2. So in order to efficiently and safely use coal, and we started off with this cleanup of coal 40 years ago or so, getting out the mercury and the lead and the sulfur, it's expensive to clean up the from a coal plant. You've got this smoke coming out that's got CO2 and it's got all this other bad stuff. It's expensive to clean that up. Now, if we don't want to incur that expense, we could just really pollute. I don't know if you remember, we used to have this whole issue with acid rain. The trees in the Northeast were dying because there was so much sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides coming off that were turning into acid and killing the trees. So we cleaned that up and now we're cleaning up the particulates and the CO2. So as a result of using less and less coal, there's been a steady decline in coal coal mining jobs. I mean, I, I feel sorry for the coal miners. Boy, it's probably the most dangerous industry just because of black lung disease and just the danger of it. But there's a steady decline in jobs there. Not only because we're using less coal in the U.S., we're still exporting it, mostly because of new mining techniques. We used to call it strip mining. Now it's called mountaintop mining. Basically, you find a, a coal seams in the mountains somewhere underground, and instead of kind of digging sideways into the ground, into the side of the mountain, which we used to do, it's a lot of work, we just rip, we, the coal companies, just rip off all the trees, dig away all the topsoil, dig away all the, the rock covering up, dig out the coal seams, and then just kind of... <laughs> then go bankrupt and just leave this denuded environment. Extremely destructive to the environment. But that's the cheapest way of getting coal out of the ground. And because it's all mechanized right now, you need a fraction of the number of miners to do it. So you're you know reducing the cost of mining this coal, but you're destroying the environment. Thousands of mountains in the Appalachias that have been flattened into you know flatter hills, surrounded by valleys that are filled with the waste products of this mining. So environmentally, it's a disaster. But you also kind of look at what we have to do if we want to use coal as a clean fuel. It can be done. This is a technique called sequestering the CO2 or removing the CO2. So we can make electricity generated from coal. We can make that clean, but it's expensive. So we can't have clean coal that's also cheap. That's the fundamental dilemma. So that's the reason why coal is just being supplanted by other energy sources. In order to make it clean enough for what we need, it becomes more expensive than any other fuel. All right. As a result, when I'm talking about more expensive, homeowners and businesses don't buy coal. It's bought by utilities to generate electricity. Utilities are not planning any more coal plants in the U.S. They're rapidly replacing their existing plants with natural gas plants. And now a lot of the new plants that are being built aren't even being built to run on natural gas. They're being built to use solar, wind, and batteries. Okay. Next fuel, petroleum, crude oil. It started with the first oil well in Pennsylvania. We needed this petrochemical for kerosene for lanterns. I remember when I was a kid, we had kerosene lanterns. When we go camping, you can still buy kerosene. It's just a stillet of petroleum. Now, the electric light bulbs almost killed the petroleum industry around the 1900s until a tremendous demand for automobiles started again in the 1900s. If they figured out that they could have a gas engine or a diesel engine instead of these electric cars, boy, the electric cars of 100 years ago. The U.S. was a world leader 
here in petroleum production until the 1940s. We had oil wells in Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, and then Texas. We were the leader until they found huge oil fields in the Middle East. Basically, there wasn't a lot of people there, and there was a lot of oil companies that started up. Then what happened in the 70s, there was oil shortages that were created for some political reasons and things like that. And the, the U.S. back in the 70s, this is when I got in the energy industry, said, hey, we've got this energy disaster. Let's look into other things. They looked into things like synthetic fuels, natural gas, and they look into solar. Started investing in better ways of extracting oil from the ground. Fracking is a technique. And really, fracking over the last 10 or 20 years has taken off, really increased the supplies of oil in the U.S. The U.S. is now a leading petroleum producer. Sometimes we're number one, bigger than Saudi Arabia, bigger than Russia. And we're also exporting oil. Now, the actual consumption in the U.S. peaked in 2005. So it's on the decline. We're using less crude oil in the U.S., basically due to fuel economy standards and eventually electric vehicles. All right, the third major fuel, fossil fuel that we're using here in the U.S., natural gas. Once again, discovered kind of as in oil wells in Pennsylvania. It was just bubbling out of the ground. But it was hard to kind of transport this. We initially manufactured natural gas. It wasn't natural. We manufactured from coal gas and we used it for street lights. But then they figured out how to drill wells, extract the gas, clean it up a little bit, and then transport it in pipelines or, you know, starting after World War II around the country. So, heck, I remember as a kid, we were replacing all the oil furnaces, oil burners with natural gas. Even old houses had coal boilers. So natural gas turned out to be the cheapest and the cleanest fuel for heating and manufacturing. It's catching up to the use of petroleum. So it actually increased steadily from 2005 to 2017 to a large degree because utilities stopped using coal and they started using natural gas to fuel. But, you know, we may be close to a peak of our natural gas use because the utilities are slowing down the installation of natural gas plants in exchange for putting in wind and solar. And then wind and solar and now battery power. Okay, we talked about fossil fuels. But what about other fuels, other ways of converting energy into power or motivation for vehicles? Now, obviously, we can get electricity from wind and solar and hydro. Those are big sources. We also have a lot of power still in the U.S. from nuclear. It's a dominant electric power source. Back in the 60s, they were talking about making nuclear power, too, making electricity too expensive to meter. Eh, it didn't quite work out that way. Right now, there's the nuclear power plants. They're old. They're 30, 40, 50 years old. They're getting retired. There's only 99 reactors left operating in the U.S. And there's only one plant still under construction. There's been a bunch of others that were planned or started construction. They bailed. So there are now at the Vogley nuclear plant in Georgia, there are two reactors that have been under construction for like 20 years. It's taken forever. They'll be lucky to get into commercial operation by 2022. They're way, way over budget, over $20 billion. And that's not including the future future cleanup costs. And the analysts really expect that this is going to take longer and still more money. And unfortunately, the ratepayers in Georgia are going to have to pay much more for their electricity because the utility is stubbornly saying, we're going to get this nuclear to work. We're going to get this nuclear to work. So much better off if we just scrap the idea, you know, recycle the whole plant before it's radioactive, and then put in solar and battery storage. Now, problems with nuclear, fundamentally, it's just expensive. It takes forever to build, huge risks. You get nuclear waste, 
And then even when you want to turn the plant off in 40 or 50 years, it's expensive, billions of dollars to decommission the plants, to take them apart. You can't just plow them over. You've got all this radioactive equipment that you have to kind of bury for eternity. So what's happening now is utilities, they're like, we're not taking any more risks on nuclear power because solar and storage is much cheaper. Obviously, natural gas is much cheaper. And they have to have their heads examined if they say, all right, we're going to go plan for spending based on current timing over $20 billion in 20 years to build a nuclear plant that might be operating in 2050, whereas wind and solar are so much easier and cheaper and they work right now. Okay. There's a lot of talk about hydrogen, the hydrogen economy. Hydrogen is super light gas. It's not really a fuel. I kind of look at it more as a storage medium. Now, where does hydrogen come from? It's so light that if it's in the atmosphere, it just kind of escapes. We make hydrogen from converting natural gas. It's this process called steam reforming. We take the natural gas, we heat it up a lot with steam. It's basically water. And what happens is in that process, we create as a byproduct pure hydrogen, and a lot of CO2. You just kind of look at what goes into natural gas. It's C4. You got H2O going in and you end up with CO2 and you end up with H2, hydrogen. We capture the hydrogen. What do you do with the CO2? Well, it goes into the atmosphere. So although hydrogen is clean as burning fuel, because when you burn it, you combine hydrogen with oxygen in the air. It makes heat. It combusts, and the, the byproduct is just water vapor. But it's a, you know kind of sort of explosive. You can have the Hindenburg effect. But the downside is you generate a lot of CO2. So this whole concept about the hydrogen economy, yeah, it sounds great, but we're going to be polluting just as much as if we directly burn natural gas. The other dilemma with hydrogen is hard to transport. You know, it leaks out of things, so you have to have really high-pressure tanks or special pipelines. You can't use existing natural gas pipelines. So you need a whole new pipeline infrastructure. Now, one possibility is you can also create hydrogen. This is something we did in chemistry in high school. You can create hydrogen by electrolyzing water. You have a, an anode and a cathode. You put a current through, and you're actually breaking up the water into H2 hydrogen and into oxygen. They kind of split off. You can do that. But the thing is that, heck, if you're going to be using electricity, it's just much more cost-effective to use an electric vehicle, taking the electricity, putting it in a battery, and running it that way. Now, why are we still talking about this? The car industry, the automobile industry, the fossil fuel industry really likes to support the concept of hydrogen. Obviously, natural gas industry likes it, and the car companies like it because it's pretty similar to what natural gas is. The cars aren't going to be that much different. You'll have a hydrogen tank instead of a gas tank, but it's just going to require a whole new infrastructure. So, you know, from an economic standpoint, let's put that one aside because it does pencil out. Now, when we're talking about penciling out, we talk a lot about the economics of solar and wind. Now, in the U.S., in order to make these economics better, for solar, we have the investment tax credit. By the way, that's going down at the end of 2019. And in the wind industry, we have something called the production tax credit. And these tax credits were originally put in place to make the economics for wind and solar better. And eventually, the industries hope to get weaned off of the incentives. As I said, the, I, the investment tax credit for solar is going to zero at the end of 2021. And the production tax credit for wind also, I think, is going to expire. So it's it's kind of good to wean the industries off of these incentives because then you're not supporting them forever. I mean, if they're cost-effective, they're cost-effective. Same thing happened with the petroleum industry. At the beginning, there was big incentives for drilling for oil and gas, and there was incentives for doing R&D in the oil and gas industry. ton of incentives right now for finding ways to clean up coal and oil and gas emissions, sequestering carbon dioxide. But specifically in the oil and gas 
industry, there's something called the depletion allowance, which ends up being about a 15% tax credit for the revenues that are generated from selling oil and gas that comes from wells. So as long as these wells are running, everything you produce, you get a 15% tax credit. It's a permanent kind of incentive. Now, in addition to those explicit incentives, and it kind of very two-faced when the fossil fuel industry is saying, well, the solar industry is getting all these incentives. Well, you got to look yourself in the face, in the mirror, and say, hey, there's big incentives also, explicit incentives for oil and gas. But secondly, you think about conceptually what we're doing to support the oil and gas industry. The billions and billions and trillions of dollars that go into defending issues that are going on in the Middle East, where we're getting a lot of our fossil fuels, at least we used to. We're defending shipping lanes. We've got war in the Persian Gulf, all that. And plus subsidies that we have on public lands, where a lot of the oil and gas drilling happens on public lands. Not to mention other costs like the health effects, environmental disasters when there's a you know an oil spill there was a big oil spill in the gulf of mexico an underwater oil spill that was going on forever coal ash spills you read about that when they do coal mining or they have coal power plants you have ash that results and there's a flood all that ash pollutes the groundwater pollutes the underground aquifers there's pipeline spills maybe we talked earlier about strip mining destruction of mountaintops and valleys so there's these other costs that are very very significant And, you know, when you try and look at a a complete set of costs, the renewables, to a very large degree, are superior. I mean, heck, remember seeing an advertisement when in the solar industry, we call a solar spill just a really sunny day, you know, instead of an oil spill, which is going to pollute things. So what happens is these incumbent industries, and maybe in 50 years, the solar industry is going to be like this. But right now we're dealing with the incumbencies of the oil and gas industries. When they get big, they fight really, really hard to maintain their incentives, like the oil and gas depletion allowance. Plus, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars fighting against any competitive source of energy. All right, so let's kind of take a step back and look at the economics to businesses, to homeowners who are actually using these sources of energy. How does that compare? Well, let's just look at the electricity segment. And this is some research that was pretty recently done looking at the levelized cost of energy. So starting from the top down, turns out that nuclear energy, when you look at the life cycle cost of the nuclear energy, without kind of all these externalities of a, you know, a possible uh, nuclear proliferation or, or big disasters, it's about 10 cents a kilowatt hour over the life of a nuclear plant, including the fuel, which is really a small cost, but just to build it, operate it, and clean it up. 10 cents a kilowatt hour for nuclear power. When you look at coal, coal is about 8 cents a kilowatt hour. That's high. Why? Because there's cleanup required with coal. And there's a lot of emissions that are created, and those got to be removed. Now, natural gas is down around six cents. That used to be the threshold. We had to beat that in the wind and the solar industry. Natural gas is six cents a kilowatt hour. Now, for solar, it's four cents. I was just reading an article this morning. LA is putting in a solar power plant. The bid is two cents a kilowatt hour, less than two cents. It's like 1.99 cents per kilowatt hour for a solar plant. So I'm looking at a higher number of about four cents a kilowatt hour if you're going to generate as a utility. This is at the utility level. You're not going to see this on your electric bill. Four cents a kilowatt hour for electricity generated by by wind and solar. If you're a business or a homeowner putting it on your roof because you're putting in a system that's eight kilowatts instead of eight megawatts, your cost is going to be somewhere between six and eight cents a kilowatt hour, but still way cheaper when the utility is paying. Now, the dilemma with these renewables is you still need power at night to the extent that there's not enough battery storage. You can add battery storage and that adds a, a penny a kilowatt or so. Gas turbines are commonly used by utilities right now to spin up in the evening when there's no sunlight. And the costs are going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper. The trend, it's an inexorable trend. It's towards solar and storage and wind. 
These other fuels, in my view, are doomed. Now, for transportation, it's a little trickier because there's big advantages of gasoline and diesel. They have a really high energy density. I was kind of looking at something on Wikipedia. I don't know this stuff off the top of my head. I just look it up. Plutonium, 32 million megajoules per kilogram. So, you know, a tiny little gram of plutonium. It's an enormous amount of power. You can't get it all out. Sometimes it has a tendency to explode, but very, very dense. Looking down to something more down-to-earth, gasoline has about 13,000 megajoules per kilogram. You know, there's a 40% efficiency in a car, so that ends up to be about 5,000 megajoules per kilogram. Forget about what these units mean in terms of miles per gallon. Just remember, it's about 5,000 megajoules per kilogram compared to a battery car, which has an energy density of 200 megajoules per kilogram. So you have one kilogram of gasoline, it can generate 5,000 megajoules, one kilogram of a lithium-ion battery is only 200. So just keep in mind, gasoline has 25 the energy density of batteries in an electric vehicle. Now, the gasoline car also needs an engine and a gas tank and all this other stuff, but it's just a lot more compact. And also, it's way faster to refuel. You can refuel a car in five minutes instead of hours with a battery powered. Now, what about you? If you're a consumer, what can you do as an end-user consumer? Well, you know, it's really not too cost-effective or even legal to drill an oil or a gas well in your backyard, but you can certainly generate your own electricity on your roof. So the current costs for rooftop solar, somewhere in the name of range of like, you know, five or six cents a kilowatt hour at the low end, maybe the eight or nine cents a kilowatt hour, much cheaper than utility power anywhere in the country. And it's also cheaper if you have an electric vehicle. Almost everywhere around the country, except for like really dirt cheap gas that I recently filled up my tank in New Jersey, but really cheap to run your electric vehicle on solar power, power that you generate on your roof. And the downside is EVs still cost more than gas cars, but that's going to change. So we're in the midst of a a huge energy transformation. It takes time. New technologies are basically supplant the old technologies because they're better and cheaper. And this transition is going to happen just as certainly as we went from candles in the 1700s to LEDs now. All right, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.